Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of the Asian Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from James Cook University in Cairns. I am your familiar stranger today, Simon Theobald, with... Victor Basque. Thank you, Victor. Also from James Cook University. Also from James Cook University. (laughs) Represent. (laughs) Sasha Cody from Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. And... Catherine Junta from the University of Sydney. So thank you all so much for coming on the program today. It's lovely to have three guests. So Victor, what are you thinking about this week? So this week we have all of us been at the AAS 2018 conference, which has the title of Life in the Age of Death. And it's been enriching and radical in lots of ways. But for me, it's been putting into conversation with myself and with my colleagues about the relationship that as anthropologists we have with forming content. How do we keep the ethnography that we go and spend all of this time and invest our lives in as alive as the lived dilemmas of the encounters that we have? And I think Lucas Basia's keynote this week was a really beautiful example of the ways that different styles of expressing ethnography can create a generative dialogue with each other. So he gave a really gorgeous talk and it was a narrative description of his relationship with his family in a lot of ways, but how that kind of spills out into his understanding of the land in that area and the economic framing of that land and the problems it creates for the environment around that area. But while he spoke, he also had imagery playing overhead. And it wasn't an adjunct to his presentation, you know, it was part of his argument. And the images made arguments on their own terms in a kind of more than beautiful way, because there are moments in the discussion where you felt quite sick, actually. Mm -hmm. You got this kind of crop sickness because we were framed so tightly. There was no horizon to remind you of the land that you stood on. And it, it kind of mimicked that really tight framing of the economy as a way of understanding land. So there were all of these interesting tensions that he brought out in the modes with which he told the story. And as an audience, you kind of lent in and created meaning or stripped it out of that discussion. And it felt very alive. Even the spoken voice he had felt very alive. And there's been a number of talks that I have heard and discussions that I've had where I've thought through Maybe this is the possibility for a multimodal or a multimedia anthropology. Maybe different, even this podcast that you do is an expression of, okay, how do we take what we do and step it out into the world and keep it alive? So that's where my thinking has been, and I have no answers to any of it yet, but very, very inspired by the experimentation that I'm seeing. I guess the question is whether you think multimodal, like what is the position of multimodal anthropology Mm. uh, in in the discipline in general and how you you guys feel? Do you think it fits into your work, Sasha, or? (laughs) So Victor's comments about the first presentation, for me, I think it was with the video showing, it would have been a very different experience as a listener without that video. And for me, the video made everything. And actually, Mm. I tuned out to what he was saying for a lot of the time, I have to admit, (laughs) and was just watching the video and the vastness of this dead, barren land. So my takeaway was moving, like many people's was, not from what he said, but from what he showed. Yes, there's a huge opportunity, I think, and need for multimedia anthropology because it, it 
communicates in a way that the written word cannot. Do you think the text is dead? It's ironic that I feel like I'm taking sort of this straight man position. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because I do queer anthropology. But I feel like I would love to be able to say yes. But I think that, and this is something that I've been thinking in parallel with what Victor has been saying at this conference, there's all these exciting potentials, but I also have deadlines and my scholarship deadline bearing down on me and the prospect of unstable employment in my future. And I feel like there is this sort of strange position that PhD students, early career academics are in where we are trying to advance the discipline and think creatively and productively in new ways while also trying to put food on our tables. I would love to be in a world where I could do that without the 15 minute conference paper. And I'm not sure really how to get to that place. I hope the text is not dead and that the conference paper is not dead. But what I would love to see, which is what we explored in our experimental lab, was understanding the kinds of knowings that are contained in different ways of expression, different ways of being. So moving away from hierarchies of text and image and sound and object, but trying to work out the generative dialogue that these can put themselves in with one another. And then what does that create? Text does one thing and it's beautiful and it's really wonderful, but it's just as limited as what images do. Spoken word does. They have their roofs to them. They hit these limits and they have an excess as well. So how can we create a playful, you know, a serious Mm. silliness amongst these kinds of modes that help us to understand the knowledges contained within each of them? That was a really beautiful and articulate Endpoint. So, Sasha, what are you thinking about this week? I'm thinking a lot about China. So for the past 20 years, I've been professionally and personally involved with China. And as we all know, China now in the world is more assertive than any time in our lives. And so I'm thinking about what does this mean for me as an anthropologist? I'm constantly questioning myself, how can I make the scholarship that I do, the research that I do, relevant and important to the discussion about China in a context where everyone talks about China as a threat, where everyone conflates China as everybody in China, where everybody in China is like a yellow peril out Mm. to destroy the world and eat up our resources, infiltrate our governments, steal our technology, So I'm always thinking, what's my role in this personally and professionally? And it's very difficult, I have to say, because it's hard to know, one, what questions to ask, and two, how to do meaningful, helpful, relevant scholarship without, on the one hand, contributing to this blatant one-sided debate, but on the other hand, not being an apologist for China, Mm -hmm. because there are clearly problems. Particularly for people who work in not just authoritarian societies potentially, but in in Mm. situations where there's a sensitive subject, particularly Mm. in a kind of broader discussion that's happening in the Australian general public or so on, Mm. you're always torn between trying to advocate for nuance, I guess is the Mm. real question. And Mm. I think how do we kind of skirt this space between saying, look, it's not all all terrible, Mm. but also there are some things you should be considered. Is that something that you guys come across in your own... Yeah, I think for me, I'm just thinking as you're talking through the lens with which my work is happening, you know. Mm. So I work with transgender artists and activists in southern India. And it sounds like a very neat sentence (laughs) 
for what is ultimately a very layered and very plural place. When you look at it structurally and politically, I think sometimes the criticisms are easier to make mm. because they are cleaner. But when you're dealing with a person one-on-one -on -one mm. and you see even the nuance of their lives, how it is that they are using the resources and the, the opportunity in front of them to make what little shift they can. Mm. And they're working with a flawed system and you as an anthropologist are in a fraught situation. Mm. It's, and you have to charge forward even though it is fraught. Mm. This resonates so strongly with where I'm at in my work, which is in queer community in Sydney, because when you're inside of it and you are so closely examining it, you have critiques, you see the problems or you see things mm. that could be framed in ways that we want to shift or change. But then when you're presenting it to an audience that isn't inside of it, and when you're working with a marginalized group or a group that does have hate directed towards it, you do really run that risk of fueling that. Yeah, giving transphobic people, homophobic people, even the right generally, ways to twist our words to be used against us. But at the same time, the people that I work with I think would broadly agree with me that it is imperative to continue to work to make our communities stronger. And sometimes that is through critique. As anthropologists, like you say, Sasha, we deal in nuance. My supervisor tells me to write with love. And I think that for me, that's where it is at. In the very sort of small scope of my academic work, when we write about people with love, that can kind of enable a critique that is balanced seems trite, but that's mm -hmm. what I have today. Mm -hmm. But in terms of then beyond that, mm -hmm. I think it really is a live question. Mm -hmm. And if I can just add one thing, mm -hmm. like on the end of this topic, it kind of comes back to the first mm -hmm. topic, which is about different forums and platforms and media. Mm -hmm. So I find in my work in China, I'm constantly fighting against journalism mm -hmm. and sensational headlines. And actually, the people who read this are not going to read an academic paper that I write that may mm. have all this nuance. And this is exactly where, as anthropologists, we need to engage with all kinds of platforms to public anthropology, mm. you know, to get our message across mm. and to get our research out there in ways that can be you know, appreciated and absorbed by yeah. multiple audiences. Is there room for a sympathetic portrayal of people who have profoundly different views to our own? I think, yes. I really struggled in my fieldwork working with a handful of people who have really, really different politics and views to me, particularly around gender. So feminists who might not invite trans women into their spaces, things like that. And I think that it's impossible to spend that amount of time with someone and not see the whole of them and find ways that they are not just this one horrible, damaging, violent perspective, even as we do see it as horrible and damaging and violent. Maybe sympathetic isn't the right word, mm. but I want to come back to what you said and nuanced, right? Because from an activist perspective, when we understand why people in, have these perspectives and enact these politics, I think that that is a tool for us to, I don't want to say fight against, but bring them in, you know, 
So to understand is powerful. Mm. And if we put up a wall at something that we disagree with, that can limit understanding. That said, um, I don't want to imply that it's some sort of ethical imperative. I think that each of us has to do what we can, particularly if you're like me and I suppose to an extent you, Victor, and Mm. maybe even in your work, Sasha, you know, you're to some extent a part of the community that you work in. Mm. This is a live issue, like, and it's physical when you encounter these perspectives and actions that you do see as violent to yourself and the people you love. And so I think it's important to have a nuanced representation and to understand, but it's also important to preserve ourselves. I would love to keep this conversation going forever because I think it's fascinating, but unfortunately we have to keep moving on. So Kate, what are you thinking about this week? So this week, as I've been engaged in all these wonderful discussions at the conference that we've been riffing on presently, I've been watching my social media fill up with comments about changes to certain mediums policies, particularly Tumblr and Facebook. So for those who may not be aware, Tumblr has decided that as of December 17th, they're banning all adult content. For those who may not be aware, Mm. Tumblr is a big uh, site for porn and particularly queer porn and uh, sex workers. There was a lot of contention over the stipulation in the Tumblr guidelines that female presenting nipples would be banned. I'm not really sure how someone's building an algorithm that determines what a female presenting nipple is. (laughs) And I noticed this morning that Facebook has also added some guidelines in that technically do not allow you to state a sexual preference. So as we're talking about life in the age of death, I'm thinking about what is going to happen to my own community and the community that I work in, the queer community, when some of the key ways with which we connect with each other across physical borders is taken away from us. Thinking about different forms and the kind of forms that enable people to be taken on their own terms, like people's own forms of expressing themselves. I'm wondering what happens when that's taken away. One of the big things that I want to say with my work or talk about with my work is the absolute joy and empowerment that femmes, the femmes that I work with receive through their friendships with other femmes. And I don't think it is just joy or just joy, but it's survival, right? They are enabled to survive in a world that is misogynistic, that is homophobic because of these connections. And I'm really, I'm honestly quite fearful about what these sort of, these changes hold for us going forward and and I wonder what my role as an ethnographer of my own community is in light of this do you think you can be an activist anthropologist oh that's such a loaded word I know isn't it it's such a (laughs) um I mean it depends on what we mean by that I think that my anthropology is inherently activist insofar as I'm very committed to taking people on their own terms and an an activism of care and love in in those representations. Thanks very much for that, Catherine. Uh, Now to me, um, what I've been thinking about this week and what we've been asked to talk about very briefly is North Sentinel Island, which is a totally different topic from what we've been talking (laughs) about the rest of this podcast. How can we make it queer? (laughs) (laughs) But I think, I mean, this taps into kind of very old ideas of anthropology Mm. and, and 
in some ways. So for those of you who don't know out there in Sentinel Island, North Sentinel Island is is part of the Andaman Islands. It is it has an indigenous people. We don't know exactly how many. They think maybe 300 people who have lived there for approximately potentially 40,000, 60,000 years, largely unperturbed by outsiders until relatively recently. And just, I think, two weeks ago, an American missionary mm. arrived trying to convince the tribe to convert to Christianity. And after about two or three days, he was speared or gone arrowed to, to death. Mm. And there has been some debate about whether we think that counts as a, as a murder, whether it counts as legitimate self-defense, whether the body should be retrieved, and whether these people should just be left alone. But to put on your sort of anthropological helmets in a very traditional way, what do you think anthropology's response to the events in North Sentinel Island should be? Oh, he packs a punch. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? I'm going to... I'm going to obfuscate by saying that with my anthropology hat on, I'm really interested in the local response to this. So in, in preparation for this podcast, I read up a little bit on what had happened and I was fascinated by an article, I think, from the ABC that was eulogising this missionary, which I think, you know, there's a space for, but what I was left wondering was we're not eulogising every single individual that has lost their life through acts of colonialism and, and that anthropology has been complicit in. And I think that it really speaks to the way that we value life in this community. So as an anthropologist at home, that is my my sort of question. Victor? I think, um, of course, it's devastating for his family and his friends and his extended network of people. The difficulty with such an incident is its capacity for metaphor. Mm. And I think that's what will happen with this story is it will be kind of stretched across different ways of thinking. I was very struck by the naivety of his approach and devastated by the fact that ideas prevail in this kind of everydayness, that he did not even question his approach to the island, to the people, because of the everyday confirmation of his thinking, that he had something that needed to be shared and that people needed saving. And you see it a lot in my own work, the everyday practices that reinforce certain concepts. And in this instance, he lost his life over it because of a lack of critical reflexivity in his everyday living. So my, my thinking was like, oh man, how do, we, how do we get people to be more self-reflexive and self-critical? Because I think life in the age of death right now is about that moment. How can we all look at ourselves and critique the way we're living, not to be destructive to our own identities or pull ourselves down, but how can we kind of pull ourselves up? Questioning. Exactly. Questioning. And I just saw yeah. this really young, spirited human mm. charge onto the land in which he wasn't invited, <coughs> thinking that he needed to save souls. And um, that's a very age-old story. Mm. And for exactly as Kate's saying, it ended in a particular way this time. History has shown that it didn't always end mm. that way. So what will happen next with that piece or what the anthropologist should do with it, I don't know, but it is a, a portrait of a certain style of thinking right now. And there's room there to talk about that. But at the same time, you don't want to hijack somebody's tragedy to do your homework, yeah. you know. So 
I, I'm also obfuscating in a strange way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are you are you going to obfuscate for us as well, Shasha? Well, I think there's there's so much in this story, isn't there? There's mm. just so many different angles. Again, I don't know what anthropologists should do, but what I found interesting in the entire story is the is the economics of it all. You know, so you've got very cheap, regular boat trips that can take anyone out there and do regularly take people out there mm. that are not killed. You know, so it's quite common, is what I understand. This whole idea of, you know, pushing the boundaries of different kinds of tourism, which is so prevalent in society. So for me, it was this this poor guy, in some ways, is kind of you know at the the tip of these much bigger things going on that aren't going to change. And I wouldn't be surprised if this happens again, if not in this location, somewhere else. If it's not death, it's injury. I guess what's missing in the whole thing is the, the locals' perspective, which I, I don't which I don't know what it is. And we, um, we don't know. And yeah. at the moment, we can't yeah. know, unfortunately. It, yeah. But I think this is a great moment for us to say thank you all so much for beautifully obfuscating. <laughs> <laughs> we did it well. You did. Yeah. I'd just like to thank you, Victor, for yeah. coming on the show. Thank you. It's been so wonderful to just riff with you guys. Yeah. It's been really nice. Thank you, Sasha. My pleasure. Very enjoyable. Thank you. And thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are Diana Caddo and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.